Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 6th, 2017, and my guest is psychologist and author Paul Bloom, the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology at Yale University. His latest book has the provocative title, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion, and he really is against it. Paul, welcome to Econ Talk. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, as you point out many times in the book, um, empathy is used in a wide variety of ways. So when you say you're against empathy, which is already bad enough, but you want to clarify more precisely what you mean in the book, so do that here. Tell us what you mean by empathy in particular. Yeah, it's kind of a terrible way to start any conversation, but I think for this, I have to begin by defining my terms. People use the term empathy in every imaginable way. Some people use the term empathy to mean just everything good, everything kind, moral, compassionate. And I'm not against empathy in that sense. That's great. Other people use it in a much more narrow way to refer to our understanding of other people. So if I, if I understand how your head works, how, what's going on in your mind, I'm having empathy for you. And I'm not against that either, though I think that this isn't necessarily a force for good. Um, very nice people have a lot of empathy in that sense because they understand other people could make their lives better. But real terrible people also have empathy in that sense because they can use their empathy to exploit others. But the sort of empathy I'm focusing on is what psychologists sometimes call emotional empathy. And it's feeling the feelings of others, feeling their happiness, feeling their pain, um, being connected emotionally to them. And for a long time, a lot of people simply assume that this is at the core of goodness, that the world needs is more empathy. But I argue that when we think about empathy in this way and we zoom in, um, it's actually a force for evil. So to keep our terms which is shocking, um, and uh, being a contrarian, I understand the appeal of, of take, staking out such an extreme position, but you, you defend it quite ably in the book. But I want to I clarify one more difference uh, in, in terminology. What's the difference between empathy and compassion? Because, again, as you point out, a lot of people use those as synonyms, means just being a good person, but that's not what you mean by empathy. So what's the difference between empathy and compassion? Yeah, that's right. And I should say more generally, I don't care how people use the words. I mean, I'm happy talking about things using different words. Um, in my experience, empathy is the word that comes closest to what I'm worried about. But what's more important is the ideas. And I think one of uh, the contributions I'm hoping to make in, in my book is getting people to distinguish between different aspects of being a good person. So the distinction between empathy and compassion is really at the core of my book. Um, empathy is, as I said, feeling what another person feels. So if you're, you know, if you're feeling humiliated or, or lonely or anxious and I hanging out with you, thinking about you feel, share your humiliation, your loneliness, your anxiety, that's empathy. But if I care about you and I want to make your life better, I want to improve you, your, your life has value to me. I might feel love towards you or at least sort of some sort of kindness. That's compassion. And you might think, well, that's just a verbal difference. They're just two sides of the same coin. They're just two ways of talking about the same thing. But they're really different. They, um, if you care about this sort of thing, they, they light up different parts of the brain. 
But I think more importantly, um, when you train yourself to exercise empathy, as has been done, it doesn't help. It makes you more more uh, anxious. It makes you avoidant. It leads to burnout. But when you train yourself to experience compassion, it actually has positive benefits. So, um, so you know, the subtitle of my book is The Case for Rational Compassion. And the rational part is um, how we should make moral decisions. And, you know, given what you do as for your line of work, I think, you know, you may have some sympathy for the arguments there. The compassion part is you need some sort of motivation. And I think the motivation is better comes from compassion than from empathy. Let's dig a little deeper on, on the empathy part. Uh, so I'm feeling humiliated or I'm feeling despair. And you're you come over and we're having coffee and and you have empathy for me. Now, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean you actually feel pain that I'm in pain or does it mean, merely mean that you imagine what I'm feeling? Is there any distinction there? It's it's an interesting question. We don't literally feel other people's pain. I could distinguish if you're. You know, if, if, if you have a, if you've been stabbed and you're yelling and I feel empathy for you, it's not exactly like I feel I've been stabbed. In fact, it's quite a ways from it. Yes, it is. But at the same time, and, uh, you know, your, your man, Adam Smith, who you've written about, was was very eloquent on this, though to a lesser degree and though somehow really different in kind, there is a sense in which we feel others feelings. Um, if you watch somebody say smashes thumb with a hammer you might flinch and it's not merely oh man i understand what's going on with that guy to some extent you feel it um and emotions like anxiety actually really do spread i think in those cases you get this this you, you really do get a duplication a mirroring and there's this neuroscience literature which is very cool and you know i i I'm, I'm not. I, I tend to be quite skeptical about what a lot of the claims made from neuroscience labs. But this is the stuff I like, which is that if I watch you in pain, parts of my brain that would be active if I was to experience the same pain, if I was to be shocked or burnt or stabbed or poked, become active if I if I feel empathy for you. So there is some sense, I think a limited sense, where we literally feel others' pain. So I'm going to take a very timely example. Last night was the Super Bowl, and I'm a Patriots fan. I've been a Patriots fan since 1962. Um, and a oh, Red congratulations, Sox fan. Well, thank you. About, yeah, like I achieved something. Yeah, uh, But yeah, people do give <laughs> congratulations meaninglessly, but, I, but I, it's a sign of kindness. I appreciate that. Um, and I've been a Red Sox fan since about 1962, and until about 15 years ago, both of those teams were an unending succession of failure and pain. To its fan base, um, and then the last fifteen years have been incredible success. So last night, uh, the Patriots rallied, and uh, I have to say, some of my pleasure was diminished at the thought of what the other team's fans were feeling because I had been there, I'd experienced it. So I wasn't literally feeling their pain, but I was sensing it in some. When I saw the faces of their players on the sideline, I, it took some of my joy away, and. Um, I just think that's an important part of the human experience that, that's what we're talking about, if I, if I have it right. I think it is, although I think you're an unusually kind person in that regard. Some of the experiments actually use sports teams as, uh, as, as a way of looking at who we feel empathy for and who we don't. And your experience of empathy for the opposing team is, is unusual and generous. Uh, there was a study in Europe with soccer players, and what they did was uh, – they. You, 
the subject watches some other guy get electric shocks. And in one condition, he's told, this guy is a fan of your team. <laughs> and it's so good. If you do that, the guy's, you know, the parts of the brain light up that's associated with his pain. You get to the empathy. But if told that he's the fan of the opposing team, not, not only does empathy shut down, but parts of the brain associated with pleasure yeah. begin to well, light up. Yeah, well, Schoenfreud, or however you pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, I get that. So, so it's very sweet of you to, to, to feel for the opposing team. Le- lesser men would just look at them and feel their pain and say, this is fantastic. Serves this them is, right. It yeah. makes, this makes it sweeter. Well, I will confess there are teams that I've watched us beat that I felt something akin to that. I'm not proud of it, but it's, uh, it is part of, my, uh, part of my nature. So let's go back to the – away from my neurosis and sports fandom um, – you make the bold claim early on in the book that empathy is a very poor moral guide. And I think most people have the exact opposite intuition, which is why I think the book's so interesting. And uh, I want to add that that whole part of the book is fascinating. But there are many other interesting parts of the book about the nature of the way we think and, and reason. And I enjoyed the whole thing. But in the beginning, you make this very striking case that – it's a bad moral guide, and I think everyone's intuition is it's the opposite. The more I can empathize, the more I can put myself in the shoes of people who are suffering and imagine their, what they're feeling and sense it to the extent that I can, the better person I'll be and the better guide I will be toward public policy, toward uh, children, the people around me. And you one by one go through all those and, and, and do the best you can to knock them down. So why is empathy a poor moral guide? So empathy, uh, empathy has its good points, I'll add. I just don't think they're in the moral domain. I think empathy uh, is a great source of pleasure uh, from literature and movies and, and, and TV shows. And it plays some role in intimate relationships. And in fact, that's the particular part of the book where I really enjoyed writing. And I'm actually a little bit tentative myself. I'm kind of negative in some ways, positive in some ways and so on. But for policy, I think it's a train wreck. I think the same features that might make it good in other domains make it bad for policy in that it works as a spotlight. If I feel empathy for somebody, I zoom in on them and I care deeply about them. But because of this, because of a spotlight feature, it has various problems. I'll just quickly say three of them. One is that it's biased. A spotlight lights up where you, where you, where you point it at. And it's easier for somebody like me, much easier to feel empathy for someone who is white, someone who is uh, Canadian or American, someone who is attractive rather than ugly, very powerful empathy effects for that, someone who is friendly rather than frightening, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and I feel much more empathy for, say, a fellow, I don't know, a fellow university professor from a Jewish university professor from Montreal than I do for some kid in the Sudan. Even though intellectually I recognize that that's not the way it's supposed to work. So you get bias. You get empathy as a numerate. Again, like a spotlight zooms you in on one. So it's because of empathy. You get these weird psychological findings where you care more about one than about ten. And in fact, you get these everyday, everyday experiences where people get extremely concerned about a specific individual while somewhat indifferent to the suffering of hundreds, thousands, or millions and finally, um, empathy can be weaponized. Our empathy could be exploited by unscrupulous actors to get us to support things that are ultimately make the world worse. So 
Um, I'm not a pacifist. I think some wars may be justified, but there's all sorts of cases where our empathy is tweaked to motivate us to um, to support aggressive and violent actions towards a group. I push back on one part of that, which yeah. is the, the very first part, the spotlight point. Um, you, and you missed one, by the way, I think, unless I maybe I missed your, your saying it. It also tends to focus on short term versus long term, which I absolutely as an economist, I'm particularly sensitive to. So, again, I'm very positive about your claims in that area. But can't you make the point, and I'm sure you talk about this at some point in the book, and, and I don't remember your precise argument against it, but can't you make the point that you know I'm so selfish by nature that the value of empathy is that it forces me to get me out of the spotlight? Yeah, it's a spotlight on the, the sufferings, the starving child, uh, and I might give to that charity when it doesn't do a great job helping that child. I might make a mistake and give to a charity that doesn't do as well because it's enumerate. It doesn't take account of the numbers. I understand all that, but but as a starting point, don't I need to step outside myself and doesn't empathy get me there? Isn't that huge? So that might be huge. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a joke I tell in the middle of the book. I forget where I got it from. Anyway, um, Jewish grandmother's walking for a grandchild down a beach and this big wave comes and takes away the grandchild, sucks him into the water. And she wails and she and she puts her head up to God and she says, God, God, bring me back my boy. Bring me back my beautiful boy. I'll do anything. Bring me back my boy. And there's a pause and a wave comes in and the kid's washed ashore and he's safe and sound. And the grandmother looks at the sky and says, he was wearing a hat. You know, and, 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 and that's that's my um, that, that's the argument. The argument is it's an that, awful joke, Paul, I want to say it's, 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 it's not, I, for, I, I, on behalf of Jewish grandmothers everywhere, which I, I, uh, I've had a few. I, I just want to I want to I want to speak out against that joke. I, I, I have better ones. I, you, you, I, now, now you're forcing me to go down my list. Um, <laughs> but but the, so forget about the joke. The point is that, that why, why what is you're that, saying is what's wrong with why is that illustrate the why is that a critique of my claim? It's not. A, it, 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 it's a summary of your claim. The claim is that am I asking for too much? So empathy is imperfect. Big deal. But my response is twofold. Um, and for, I will agree with you. Empathy can bring you out of your shell. Empathy can can, can defy self interest. Um, in a world where there's just you and one other person, and that other person is in trouble, and in the short term, you're helping the other person will make the world better. Um, empathy is a good thing. It would motivate you to help. If it motivates you to help at little cost to yourself, just the world is better no matter how you slice it. But the world is not a simple place. And there are many cases where empathy makes things worse. It pushes you out from your self-interest, yes, but it motivates you into actions that actually have negative consequences. Now, if the only pro-social motivation we had was empathy, then we'd be stuck with it. Then if it's a choice between empathy and utter total selfishness, um, I would choose empathy. But we have other options. There's all sorts of motivations to be good to people. You, you talked before about the enthusiasm for, for empathy by many people. I agree with that. I see a lot of it. But I worry that there's sort of a failure of moral imagination. When you look at why people do good things, why people transcend their selfish desires, there's many, many reasons. They do it out of a feeling of obligation. They do it because of religious teachings. They do it because of a, of a philosophical view they hold, because they have a conscience. And I think because they often care about other people, what, what I'm calling compassion. So, yeah, 
if empathy was the only game in town, then, you know, it's probably better than pure selfishness. But empathy does a lot of harm, and there's alternatives to empathy. Well, I like the example you give in the book. You use a couple different variations on it because I think a lot of us think, well, if you, if you can feel that, you're going to do good deeds. And you point out, well, it, you should – if you really – if if you really feel someone's pain, you have a choice of just ignoring it. You don't have to do – it doesn't – there's no real – without other motivations, empathy by itself is not a motivator. That's right. There, there's actually no evidence that high empathy people are better people. And there's a few studies against it. There's one study – I'm not even sure I mentioned this in, in the book. It came out recently – that nurses who test for high empathy spend less time with patients. And you can see why. If, if I'm around somebody who's suffering and I feel they're suffering, well, it draws their suffering to my attention, which could be good, but it also is unpleasant. And so, you know, if I could turn my head and, um, and, and, and walk away, that's a wonderful solution. Empathy in itself does not make you good. And in fact, you know, as somebody who suffers from a little bit of too much empathy himself, there are many cases where if I see somebody and I see a lot of suffering, it kind of makes me you know, want to walk away, want to go online and look at something else. And, um, and so even when empathy does its work, it does its work in concert with other sort of emotions that are separate that want to make the world better. Yeah, I thought the example of the woman uh, living near the concentration camp who told the, the, um, the authorities that just could they, could they either stop shooting people or just do it where she didn't have to see it. And that yes. – <laughs> It's a uh, wonderful story about Jonathan Glover, which is, you know, she she is plainly upset at at, at the what she's seeing. Uh, that's it's disturbing. Know, death, it's just the death camps, and she says, "Could you please do it someplace else?" Right. Which and, uh, and you know, I got to have there, and I have a lot of examples. A student of mine um, gave me this example from uh, the great novel, The Island of Doctor Moreau, and the guy um, and and our main character is sort of sitting in his cabin. And he's awoken by the most horrible screams. And he's, oh, someone is suffering. This is terrible. So he gets dressed and goes for a walk so he could avoid the screams. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's very human. No, for sure. And, and as you point out, you need something else to, uh, to work in concert with that feeling if it's going to lead to a good action. Uh, one of the obvious, uh, as I was reading the book and then you got to it in, in, in some detail, is the tie-in between – your point and the effective altruism movement. We had Will McCaskill as a guest on Econ Talk talking about the idea of effective altruism. What's the relationship between that position and your position? So, so I, when I first heard the phrase effective altruism, it sounded vaguely comic. It, it's like, um, like when I heard evidence-based medicine and I thought, you I mean, there's, there's supposed to be yeah. medicine that's, that's not evidence-based. <laughs> I mean, so who in the, you know, effective altruism sounds like almost, you know, tautological, uh, which is that you, when you do your charity, you want to do it with a um, with an eye towards making the world a better place. But you know, it turns out it's actually fairly radical. I think people appreciate it intellectually, but they rebel against it emotionally. And it does tie into my claims because I'm 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 not necessarily utilitarian, but I think that any moral person has to be to some extent a consequentialist, thinking that. The, the the measure of our actions are how they make the world a better place or make it a worse place. And so when you when you extend this to charitable giving, as uh, as many people, including McCaskill and Peter Singer, have argued, um, 
you should try to say, you know, how could I make the most difference? And what's interesting is the answer to that question will be different than the answer to the question, what will most feel good? What will most scratch my empathic itch? Um, I describe in a book how I got it. I, I was on a radio stage. This is before I got on my empathy thing. But I was on a radio stage talking about my previous book. And somehow a discussion of child beggars came up. And so I talked about this article I read on just read on Slate, pointing out that when you give to child beggars in Africa and India, often you're making the world worse. You're, you're immediately making the kids better, but then you're supporting this organization that enslaves and often maims children. And there's, so there's better ways to do good. There's organizations, but this is, you shouldn't give to child beggars. It maims and them because it makes them, the people who it, are running the that's right. organization that's right. know that people will be more sympathetic to maimed yes. kids, so they maim them. It's a really a horrifying example it's, of unintended consequences that an economist would love uh, to, to rail against. And I got to say, e economists have it right in the, in the domain of charities for unintended consequences. There are so many. Um, there's, there's a story of a, of, um, a writer inter interviewed warlords in Sierra Leone and asked why they chop off the limbs of children. Oh, it's such a horrible atrocity. And the answer she got was essentially, we do it for you. We, we make money when NGOs come, when Western countries come. And in order to make you come, we need to give you uh, atrocities. Or, or, take, or take orphanages. There's a huge market by extremely well-meaning people wanting to spend a lot of money to, um, to, to adopt orphans. So in Cambodia and other places, there's now they, – they, they make orphans. They, they buy kids from their parents to support the demand. So, so I tell the story about the, the child beggars. And I'm on I'm on a radio show with a very nice person, a minister, and she's shocked. Right. And she says, and she says to me, you know, she's very very indignant. And she says to me, I like giving to children. I like the human contact. I like looking in their eyes and the humanity of it all. Very different, she told me, than giving to Oxfam or something on on the web. And at the time, because I'm kind of slow witted and polite and everything, I didn't know what to say. And I said, oh, I, maybe you have a point. But a long time later, it occurred to me what my answer should be. So I give my answer in the book, which is it depends what you want. If you want to make the world a better place, don't give to these kids. Give money some other way. But if you want to feel good about yourself, giving to the kids seems to be a wonderful mechanism. And I get that urge that she has, and I have it too. I think, you know, we want to see – we want that warm glow from helping others. And you know, I use the example in one of my books of um, – giving money to the homeless person on the street, the beggar, and people say, I, you know, I, I'm afraid they'll waste it on drugs and alcohol. And I say, well, their lives are awful and drugs and alcohol are what they need right now. And I'm trying to help them, <laughs> not help me. Yeah, well, I don't want to be partnered to that. Well, I understand that. You're entitled. It's your money. You don't have to give it to them. Yeah. But if right now, if you're only going to give them a little bit, uh, you shouldn't really care about what they do with it. It's their lives and it's respectful, actually, as opposed to paternalistic, it seems to me. And those are the calculations I think people should go through when deciding uh, what to give. But so many people don't give that way. So many people are, you know, you use the term warm glow, um, warm glow givers. Uh, Singer describes people who give to dozens, maybe hundreds of charities, a little bit to each one, like going through a buffet and grabbing a tasty morsel here. and Each one giving their own imaginative buzz of look at the people I'll help. Look at the different people I'll help. Boy, this is different too, and getting a lot of joy out of it, and maybe not making the world a better place, and maybe sometimes making it worse. When I was talking about my book 
uh, at Big Think in New York. They showed me different videos and wanted me to comment on them. And one video was, and this shocked me, and I'm, I'm cynical, but this shocked me. Um, an aid worker was talking about people who send canned foods to uh, areas in crisis, which is very nice. You know, the food helps people. But they quickly get too much. And then there's a big problem. They have to use resources to store them. There's problems about rats and vermin. So, okay, people make mistakes. But then she went on to say that sometimes they, they tell people, stop, stop sending stuff. Do something else, but stop sending stuff. And people insist on sending stuff. As if they have this itch, they can't help but scratch. Yeah, well, the example I use in my book on the homeless issue is the friend of mine whose brother carried a V8 juice in his briefcase that he would give to homeless people. And all you've really usually done is they just sell it. <laughs> and you've made yeah. it, you've added a transaction cost to their life. You give them something they don't particularly want. I mean, I understand it. Maybe it's I mean it's not the worst thing in the world. It's not the it's not the equivalent of encouraging people to chop off children's hands, thank God. But um one of the things that came to mind as I was reading that, and you anticipated a lot of my um, reactions is because you've thought about this a lot, is on the surface, your book seems – could be read as an indictment of uh, liberal policy solutions, uh, which mm-hmm. tend to emphasize empathy. And you push back against that quite a bit. Uh, I understand why you would, uh, but make the case because uh, obviously the – the last two presidents who talked about feeling pain were Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama. That attitude of empathy, often confused with compassion, tends to be kind of associated with soft-hearted, bleeding-hearted liberals and hard-hearted conservatives or not so perhaps empathetic. That's a, that's a stereotype. Is it true? Um, defend your claim, your book as uh, being not just an indictment of, of certain types of policies. Yeah. Um, and it's true when I, I've sort of laid out my argument to people, they very suspiciously say, <laughs> so you're attacking progressives and liberals. And, and since, since just about everybody I know is a progressive and liberal, they didn't ask me in the nicest of ways. Um, and to some extent, sort of definitely is this stereotype. Uh, liberals will describe themselves as empathic, that, that it's a good thing. Uh, they talk like Obama spoke about empathy more than any president, all the other presidents put together, I would guess. Um, and Clinton notoriously felt our pain, um, and and they're proud of it. And in fact, some conservatives don't see themselves as empathic, and are proud of that and, too. And they're proud yeah. of it. That's right. They're not a tree hugger. They're 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 right. They see things. They they appreciate unintended consequences. They appreciate other values like uh, you know like loyalty and tradition and and so on. Um, and when you give people psychological tests on empathy, and the tests are kind of awful, they're problematic in many ways, but when you give them tests, liberals are the most empathic, conservatives are less, so it's a subtle difference, and libertarians are quite a bit below. And, um, painful, and, but, and the painful, weird thing but you is, can't argue with the data, but you could. Yes. But anyway, it might be true. The strange thing is when you tell this, everybody's happy. <laughs> The liberals nod. The conservatives nod. The libertarians say exactly. Yeah. So, so um, it's news that everybody makes everybody happy. But I think if you look at the real world of policy, um, you find empathy and empathic appeals and empathic arguments are used on both sides. And in fact, they're almost some, often symmetrically used. Where if I'm arguing in favor of uh, gun control as a liberal. I'll tell you heart-rendering stories of people just like you, their children getting shot with a gun. Well, if I'm arguing for gun rights as a conservative, 
I'll tell you stories about women who have been raped because they lack the right to defend themselves. Um, if I'm in favor of affirmative action, I'll tell you stories about black kids who couldn't get into college. If I'm against affirmative action, I'll tell you about white kids who couldn't get into college. The arguments are often perfectly symmetrical. I think they're all bad arguments. I think policy decisions are always going to have winners and losers. And these stories uh, just serve to heat up people. And, and I think they're, they're horrible tools. But the point is, conservatives and liberals use them uh, interchangeably. Uh, Donald Trump, who's not somebody one normally associates with, with uh, empathy, I think was masterful at exploiting empathy, particularly for the victims of crimes during his campaign. And I'll also add, just, just to round it out, that some canonically liberal causes actually aren't motivated by empathy. So if you want to persuade people to be concerned about climate change through empathic arguments, good luck. There's, there's very few identifiable victims. Um, it's a statistical problem. It's very future-oriented. If you're going to worry about climate change, you have to worry about it through rational consideration and sort of compassion for future generations. But your gut feelings aren't going to help you. Well, at the risk of opening a Pandora's box of listener outrage, um, I do think some people feel empathetic toward the earth as the um, object that has to be protected in the case of climate change. So I don't totally agree with that, but maybe I'm being, I don't know if I'm right there. You know, I have to say I have heard that myself, and I find that view so cringeworthy um, that I don't really know how to respond to it. And my, my instinctive response is, come on, you don't really empathize with the earth like it's a person. And then they look at me and they, they, they shake their heads sadly. So they empathize um, with the earth as if it's the earth. And then, and then I have trouble, like you do, understanding that. But yeah. I think it does – I think it's a, a real thing, and I, for listeners who are not too angry um, – <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to hear your defense of that if you'd like. Uh, and while we're on the subject, uh, why don't we turn to anger? Because while I was reading the book, again, and you anticipated this question on my part, I saw some parallels between anger and empathy, not literal, uh, rela- not a relationship, but parallels in how we judge them. So a lot of people think anger is a good thing. Uh, and so talk about that and and as a motivator and how – I think there's a very similar set of arguments people use on behalf of anger as a motivator for for good deeds and moral behavior. And like you, I'm kind of skeptical about the value of that. Yeah, I I think that's a great question. This is actually something we could talk about. I'm I'm struggling with it myself. Um, in, In a previous article, I said, look, empathy is really bad. It's just like anger, which is just really bad. It's a powerful emotion, but it's not rational. It leads us to all sorts of errors. And Jesse Prince, uh, in a commentary, pushed back on this. And and I owe a debt to Jesse because he actually wrote an article attacking empathy years ago. And and I, this was at a, a public meeting. And I just stood up and I told him he was full of beans. I just said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But then, then it stuck with me. I realized I never wrote him an apology note. Um, anyway, so um, so I wrote my thing on on. Empathy, and 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 Jesse said, "Look, you're you're underselling anger. Anger is a is a good moral emotion. Anger changes the world. Anger anger at injustice, injustice towards minorities, injustice towards the poor, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, motivates social change. And the great moral hero, heroes, um, you know, Jesus, Martin Luther King, whatever, motivated by anger, and." I see that I, I see that anger can do good. 
I guess I just view it as too capricious and irrational to be a valid um, moral tool. I think on an individual basis, we need some anger. I think uh, I, I wouldn't want my child to be angerless. Uh, he wouldn't be able to cope in a world where other people are angry. But I am uh, skeptical of it as a moral guide. What do you think? I think it's nonsense, that argument by Jesse Prince. I'm, you know, God bless him for being against empathy and getting you to write this book. But that argument makes zero sense to me. And I think it's partly – I think it's a semantic issue, I'm hoping. Uh, here's what I think matters, passion. They're not the same thing. Passion is feeling things intensely. Anger is blindness. Anger is is being overwhelmed by injustice, not not by – by uh, wanting to fight it, it's it's by it, it turns you into a uh, or it turns to rage. It turns and that's the extreme form of it, right? I, I, it's a perfect example. The reason I like that parallel is it just shows you the danger of an emotion without the reason or the side pieces that make it work to make the world a better place. When, when people in Kristallnacht in 1938 burned and, and murdered Jews in Germany. They were angry. They thought they were doing a good thing. They were wrong, I think. Uh, there's when people lynch African Americans in in America's past, or or tortured and and burned down Native American outposts. They were angry when they did it. That's not a good thing. It's it might it doesn't mean everything that's done with anger is bad, but certainly the 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 blindness that comes with anger seems to be unbelievably bad. And I think it's a great example because for me. I'm a passionate person. I have a lot. People are always surprised when they see me outside of my econ talk world because I'm relatively calm. There are a lot of parts of me that are not calm. I work very hard on this program to react calmly to the things around me, to the guests and the things they say if I don't agree with them. And that's not easy. But I think that's what being an adult is. That's what being a grown up is. It's taking these passions that we have, our anger, our intensity, our love. Or empathy and channeling them, not just saying, oh, well, that's what I feel. It must be right. That seems like the, the really bad road to go down. So would you say for anger maybe um, that anger is a poor moral guide? You, you, someone is making a mistake if they decide, I wonder what I should do next. Well, I'm angry at this group, so that's where I'm going to go. But it might sort of serve as a useful fuel or accelerant, which is once I've decided through rational means that I should protest uh, this group, I'm going to nourish my anger and let it get me out of bed and march and yell and shout. Yeah, Does that make sense? Not to me. No, to me that's, again, confusing passion and anger. Anger is about hate. Anger is about uh, a rage against things I, that, make, that make me squirm, that make me uncomfortable, that make me scared. I have so little control over it, the feeling of anger. And I've confessing here, I don't know if anybody cares, but I've tried very hard as an adult to, when I feel anger, not to act on anger. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be angry. Yeah, Being angry is part of being alive, like you said about your child. Your child should feel anger. You should feel love. You should feel things intensely rather than not intensely. You should experience life. But we always have a choice, as I believe, and we'll talk about that in a minute because that was another interesting part of the book. But I think you have a choice of how you channel that, how you react to it, how you respond to it. So getting up in the morning and feeling angry at the injustice of the world, that's, that's, that's okay. But acting on the anger in the sense of, of, of stoking it, 
as a way to um, to motivate yourself, I think is 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 really dangerous, actually, because I think you really put yourself at the mercy of your emotion rather than looking fully at, as you point out, the unintended consequences. It's, it, how many times have we seen in your own life, in my own life, and people around us, when they lash out in anger and often perhaps feel virtuous in doing so, and then have tremendous regret at the harm they've done to another person or to themselves? I think it's just a, and that would be true of almost every of these emotions. And uh, you can respond to that if you want, but I, I want to turn to parenting because I think it's a great example of where both empathy and anger totally steer us in a dangerous way. So let's let's go to parenting, but I can't resist saying that you're you're sounding kind of Buddhist, and I don't mean I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I think there's a lot appealing about the Buddhist worldview on these issues. I have a friend of mine, a philosopher, Owen Flanagan, and he actually has a book coming out, a lot of it which is on anger, um, and he has the sort of uh, uh, career that brings him into contact with the Dalai Lama, and at one point he asked the Dalai Lama through a translator, said, "If you could kill Hitler, would you?" Like back before Hitler was going to cause all that stuff. And the Dalai Lama thought about it and murmured to his, and then he turned and through translation, the answer was, yes, I would. I would do it with some ceremony and regret, but I would want to stop that karmic chain. But, and he made a real point of, of, of focusing on this, I would not feel angry. I would not allow myself to feel angry. That, that is always a wrong feeling. Yeah, that fascinates me. And I, I guess, let me, um, I want to I want to think about your comment, which is I'm actually coming to my views on this, these kind of personal traits through both a Jewish and something of a Buddhist lens, I think, because I think they kind of come together. It's not uncommon to notice that, that Jewish teaching and Buddhist teaching have some things in common. And there's a big emphasis starting around, uh, I guess it's the 19th century in Judaism to try to restrain how you respond. But no one says, oh, you can't feel anger. I think to some right. extent the Buddhist ideal is not even to feel it. If I'm going to kill Hitler, I better be angry. <laughs> so I, you know, that's where I'd push back. I'm going to, if I'm going to be successful, I better be angry. Maybe in the actual act, uh, but certainly, again, uh, I think most religions would say that when you're, when you're disciplining a child, uh, you shouldn't feel anger. You might have anger. But you shouldn't let your anger dictate how you respond. Yep. And I, I've written about this, and I, I feel somewhat strongly about it. My parents hit me as a child in a non-abusive way. I didn't consider it abuse and beat me. But I would get a cuff now and then if I misbehaved. And occasionally yeah. what we would call a traditional spanking a couple times in my life that I remember. And yet I, – and I thought – I love my parents. They're both still alive. I think they were phenomenal parents. But when my wife and I got married, we decided we weren't going to strike our children. And I had a lot of unease about that because, strangely enough, I thought I turned out okay. And I thought maybe that was part of the reason, but we decided not to. And I, and I write about this in my Adam Smith book. There are many times when I was furious at my children, and I'm so glad I didn't hit them <laughs> because I would have hit them out of my own self-interest. I, I would have justified it and said, oh, they did terrible. I needed to discipline them. But I think they would have known that too. And I'm so glad I never indulged that via anger. They still made me angry. I just didn't act on it, not in the it, way it, that I wanted to. It's a good – it's an interesting issue. Um, we're, now we're in parenting, I guess. And, and, and um, there, there seems to be two separate issues, which is I also don't – never struck my kids – now, now they're uh, they're in their twenties, and if I tried them, they they yeah. lay me out. Yeah, it's so, bad. <laughs> so you know, I, I I missed a period where I had a shot. Um, but but 
I actually think to some extent the parents who cuffed their kids or spanked their kids, I think I, it's not entirely clear to me that's always bad parenting. And I certainly think there's a lot of non-physical things you could do to your kids that are actually a lot worse. And parents do this to their kids and they feel, oh, I'm never hitting my kid, but I'm humiliating and belittling him, et cetera. And yeah. it could be a lot worse. Absolutely. I think, I, I think what's at the core of it is your insight is great, which is I think you should really try never, ever to discipline your child out of anger. If the discipline is a smack on the bottom, so be it. And and maybe one of the risks of physical punishment is it's so much could be the reflection of anger. It could feel so good and you could justify to yourself that you're you're doing it for his own good. But but I I I do, I do agree with you. I think uh, anger anger and empathy in different ways are poor emotions for a parent. And talk more generally about it. Because uh, you make some nice points, and I think they're not dissimilar from some of the points we're making, of course, about strangers and trying to help them with charity. Isn't it always better to feel my child's pain? You know, you could argue for. And by the way, I totally agree with you. I don't think it's anything. I'm not, I don't want to judge people who do strike their kids. I, I think there's. I might be wrong about it. Uh, I'm just happy the way it turned out for me, and I, I, I do think it's it's somewhat complicated. And I also take your point about. A lot of verbal abuse it can be more damaging, certainly in in the long run. But what's wrong with you know your child's crying and unhappy? What well, shouldn't I try to soothe their pain and feel it as as a way to motivate myself? So, it, it here's an example which I think helped me thinking about it understand the distinctions that need to be made. Which is um, one of my sons, and I, I actually remember this kind of vividly. It really happened. Uh, came up to me freaking out because he had something really due the next day at school and he hadn't even started it. And it, it was, it was, uh, it, it was a lot and he hadn't started it. He was panicked. And I felt inside me the same panic. I said, you know, I, and I felt like, Oh my you God. Love your, Cause you love your child. I love my kid. And, and, and I, you know, it was very hard not to feel what you could be panic mixed with, you know, inevitable anger. How could you have waited so long? Haven't I told you that? And my best moments as a parent, and in this case, I think I did it, was for me to acknowledge, look, I understand my kid. That's really important. I know what's bothering him. It's <laughs> kind of obvious. Um, That's your point about cognitive empathy. Exactly. Right? I have cognitive empathy. If I was just like puzzled as to, so are you upset? There are tears running down from your face. Does that mean you're sad? I mean, you know, you, you want to understand your kid. And I love my kid. I, I love my kid a hell of a lot. And in that point, at that period, I'm not always so good at it. That's why I let rule. So I said, okay, dude, like, let's take five minutes, take a deep breath. Let's make a plan. Let's work this out. He's panicked. I'm not panicked. And because I'm not panicked, I'm a much better father to him. And I'm, uh, and I'm able to help him more. And case by case by case. So much of being a good parent involves not getting too shook up by the immediate by the immediate suffering of your kids, for they will suffer. They will fall from the swings. They will be ostracized. They will be bullied. They will be teased. They will fail exams. They will uh, be unlucky at love. They will suffer like every human suffers. The, the most lucky kid in the world will suffer a lot. And if, as a parent, you suffer along with them. You're you're not there for them. You're you're wrapped up in your own pain. In fact, often being a good parent involves causing the, the short-term suffering of your kids. Your kid wants to go to a party on a school night, 
or, you know, wants to do something reckless and you say no and he crumples because he's really sad. Well, tough. You love him. You're looking, it's back to your point you, you emphasize, which is short-term versus long-term. If you love somebody, you're not just trying to make them happy in the next 10 seconds. You're trying to make have, have a good life. And for a kid who you have care over, control over, and doesn't typically know what's best for him, often you have to cause him suffering, make him do chores, make him do his homework, uh, forbid him to do certain things, because it's better for him in the long run. But a too empathic parent can't do that. Yeah, I can't agree more, and I and I think the uh, the only challenge there is that when you tell your child that you're doing it because you're compassionate, and not empathetic, uh, they don't really appreciate it. <laughs> that's 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 right. And part of it, and, and and yeah, and part of it realizing is recognizing at a certain point your child really will at some level hate you because your child has a difference of opinion and also different priorities. Um, people have pointed out that that you know. Uh, uh, Take an older kid, an uh, older teenager who wants to engage in reckless behavior, um, unsafe sex, you know, drunk driving and so on. Uh, as a parent, all of the negatives of that behavior will accrue to you and none of the positives. Yep. And so, so you're, to some extent, your, your interests diverge. You can explain this to your 17-year-old son, but it's not, it's not entirely persuasive. No, I think that's another incredible challenge of parenting is uh... – Confronting your own desires uh, when you want to impose them on your child, either because you want your kid to be like you or because you don't want to be ashamed or whatever it is, um, that's a big challenge. And as they get older, it, it gets uh, – it's more and more important. It's, but I think it's crucial. That's right. And I think a lot of coping with children as they become adults is acknowledging that independence of interests and desires. And I think a lot of people – I've seen a lot of people with their, with their adult children who fail at this who, for instance, nurtured this great disappointment about their kids simply because their kids didn't turn out like them. They didn't satisfy the desires they themselves would have. That's um, it's a big another part of growing up. Uh, it's so uh, it's interesting how hard that is emotionally. It can be, and um, really nothing more to say about it except that it's something. Coming back to your point about reason, which I want to turn to now, it's something you have to think about, not just feel. I think. Uh, it's important to, in all these cases, to use some long-term thinking uh, and other uses of the brain to go with the heart. Uh, they're both That's important. Right. So let's turn to the brain. Uh, you've really enjoyed that chapter. Um, you said a lot of interesting things not necessarily related to empathy. They're all interesting. Um, a lot of people have started to argue. In fact, I feel it's almost like a fad. Oh, yeah, we got a big brain, but. You know, it's it's unreliable. Uh, our heart overrules it. And we, we're full of biases. We delude ourselves. Uh, you you're very um, skeptical about that extreme opposite viewpoint. So defend it. Defend your point. I am, and I, I'm very pro rationality. And uh, and uh, this certainly is unfashionable. You know, still the way to begin. Uh, an intro psych class for many of my colleagues to say the big lesson of psychology is how stupid we are. Um, I just read, um, read a New Yorker article about the nudge unit uh, and a, a behavioral change unit in Washington. Uh, I read it, it came out a couple of months ago and they quote Richard Thaler, the founder of uh, behavioral economics. And he says, um, says the big lesson here is that we're not Albert Einstein. We're Homer Simpson. And I think that's mistaken. 
and I actually think it's not only mistaken, it's, it's almost perversely self-refuting. So a lot of psychologists and philosophers and lay people say um, they point to some aspect of human behavior, uh, some mistake we make in reasoning, some irrational political phenomena, and they say, look how laughably stupid this is. But what they fail to realize is that they're demonstrating that the mind has two parts. There's the part that makes the stupid, that does the stupid thing. But then there's the part that knows it's stupid. To, to be able to reflect on our mistakes and our ignorance, to comment on it, to laugh at it, is a demonstration that, that, doesn't, that our ignorance doesn't define us. And um, yes, we are the creature that makes statistical mistakes, but we're also the creature that invented statistics yep. and can figure out what is a mistake. We are, we are the creature who, um, who does irrational policies, but we're a creature who looks back and says, boy, we really messed up. We should figure out how to do better next time. And so I think in that way, I, I think my colleagues grossly underestimate human rationality. And I think there's another thing, which is if you look at our everyday lives, Political behavior is something else. We could talk about that. Political behavior, I think something else is going on here. But our everyday lives. Tribalism. Tri there's tribalism. There's virtue signaling. Yep. There's, um, there's treating. I think people treat politics like sports. And yep. I think that, that what looks nuts, if you, a lot of things look crazy unless you, you think that people treat politics like sports. And then it's kind of rational and it makes sense. But putting those, 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 I think, domains where we do poorly aside, in our, in our everyday life, we are extraordinarily smart. Um, the best AI cannot function anywhere near as well as your average three-year-old in doing simple tasks. And if you think about the, the capacities of people, I'm not talking about, about um, great scientists or poets. I'm talking about what it takes to, um, to get your car repaired, to go to work, to choose clothes to wear, to, to clean your house. It's... It requires extraordinary intelligence. For everybody, for everybody who says to you intelligence is overrated, ask them how much they would pay to avoid getting Alzheimer's hmm. or to avoid becoming. How much would they give so their child doesn't become mentally retarded? If they say, um, ah, that doesn't matter, then they're being consistent. Well – you give the example in there of I think you but and by the way that article that point about reason I think you attributed John McNamara in the book. Yes, that my, we're not, uh, my teach, yes, that's right. That we're not uh, that we're we are the people who make these mistakes, but at least we could realize them. It, it strikes me that that some of the this is not a nice thing to say, so you can might be crazy here. I think some of the people who push that unreason theme is that I think they're talking about other people. <laughs> You know, other people have trouble with probability. I know Bayes' rules, so I'm not. I'm immune to this kind of imperfection. But I have to help other people. It makes me a little bit uneasy. I think there's something to that viewpoint that they're holding. I, I agree. I have. I, I won't name them, but I have yeah, friends, some of them prominent, who um, who talk all the time about the moral confusions people make. People make think X is wrong and Y is right because of their and then they give a theory. But, of course, they themselves don't suffer from moral no, no, confusions. No. They're, you know, the lucky few somehow liberated from it. I also can't resist something, which is, this one's from um, one of my other teachers, actually, uh, Steve Pinker, who's now at Harvard. He writes in one of his books, says, academics often professionally 
deride IQ and intelligence. They say, oh, those things don't count. They don't exist. They aren't real. And yet, if you ever go to a faculty meeting or a search committee or, or look, about. look at reference, that's all they care yeah. about. I've, I've actually, I've had colleagues who argue that there's no such thing as general intelligence. The idea is racist. It shouldn't matter anyway. And then they're trying to argue why we should take a, a, a new graduate student. Can and they say, yeah. oh, she's, she's high G. Yeah. You don't understand. She's, she's, you know, she has limitless intelligence. It's yeah. broad, abstract intelligence and everything. It was, and, and I, I think, um, I think that there's, there's in our everyday lives, if Pinker points out, there's actually few people who fetishize intelligence more than the very people who write articles saying it doesn't exist. Yeah, and the example I was going to start to quote earlier, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell. I hope I don't get that wrong, but I, th- I think he said it, quote him at one point, or someone saying that, you know, once you have above a certain level, 20 yeah. or 30 extra IQ points aren't important. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Uh, the people who have the extra 30 are the people who change the world, good and bad. <laughs> Mostly good, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. It depends on the system they're in. But uh, 30 IQ points is, uh, what, is that two standard deviations? I don't know what they, I don't know what it is. It's, I think it's, I think it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And, and yeah, and Gladwell does say that in Outliers. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I literally don't he's, know what that means. But um, he's, he's right that there's diminishing returns. Yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously, obviously, to go from retarded to average is really important. Yep. And that's better from going from genius to super genius. But yeah, 30 IQ points. I'm not even um, sure that's true, by the way. I'm not even sure there's huh. diminishing returns. Because if you go from, let's, and it's stupid because like we're talking about like it's a real scale, like it means something. But, but if yeah. you go from being a really smart person to being a genius, it's not like, oh, well, now you'll never have trouble balancing your checkbook. It'll just, you'll just be able to do it instantly without a calculator. <laughs> so it's not that valuable because you could use a calculator. That's not yeah. what genius gets you. It's qualitatively different. It's not just quantitatively different. Now you might be able to cure cancer. You might be able to do something that's way more than an incremental increase, right? It's, it's, it just strikes yep. me as wrong, but I don't know. Maybe there's some subtlety to it I, I don't appreciate. But, um, but if I, but but you know, if I could snap my fingers, or you know, more realistically, I could do something about lead in the water or an educational system that would bump our nation's IQ or the world's IQ. It's hard to imagine something that would be better. You know, smart people could do evil things. Smart people could, you know, evil geniuses are are a real thing. Yeah. But for the most part, intelligence. There's a lot of evidence for this. Intelligence makes the world better. It allows people to see their way through problems. It allows people to turn, you know, what you might call uh, uh, zero-sum interactions to place interactions of mutual benefit. Smarts is good. Yeah, although spoken like a true academic, Paul. Uh, exactly. I, I have to say, I, I, I think it's, it's overrated in certain dimensions. Uh, certainly, it's overrated in the moral dimension. As you pointed out earlier, I think – I think it it does tend to lead to moral arrogance, which is dangerous. Uh, It tends to lead to general arrogance, which is dangerous. Uh, But certainly being able to figure stuff out is a really good thing. And to think abstractly can be a really good thing. So I think there's something there. Talk more generally about really the theme of the book, which is, okay, so empathy can lead us astray. It can get us to ignore um, long-term consequences. It's innumerate. What's it mean to you to bring rationality to bear on it? When you, if you're giving, uh, I don't know how popular this is, but suppose you really actually wanted to make the world a better place. You want to be a good human being, and you've always thought empathy was a good idea. So I'm thinking about a listener right now who's thinking, well, gee, this is kind of a bummer. It's depressing. 
I always thought empathy was great. Now it's leading me astray. Now what? Give me some advice. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a good question. The book is very far from a, a how-to book. Although I do think that, that around the edges, there are some interesting um, possibilities, like meditation, actually. There's some evidence that meditation diminishes empathy but boosts compassion, makes us a little bit wiser in our decision-making. But I think what, we're really, what I'm really pushing for is sort of a cultural change, a cultural change in what's acceptable. And I don't think that this is impossible. I, I, here's, an, here's an analogy, which maybe is more than an analogy, which always struck me as an answer to your question, which is um, it used to be you could be, you could be openly racist. Political speeches from a certain time back had openly racist appeals. You know, we should do this to defend the white race and so on. And you don't get much of that these days. You might get dog whistles and implicit stuff, but, but people reject openly racist arguments. And in themselves, most people, I think, certainly most people in this nation, um, you know, don't want to be racist. Racism is terrible. Maybe they, they are. They struggle to overcome it, but that, they would struggle they to overcome it. They will argue around the edges over what is and what isn't racist, but to a large extent because they acknowledge that certain forms of racism is just wrong. Now, imagine this. What politicians do now is that in order to make cases for their policies, including policies like expelling immigrants, like going to war, but also pro-gun control, anti-gun control, everything, they tell you police, stories. Police behavior, yeah. Police behavior, exactly. They tell you write you a lot about that in the stories. book. Yeah. Tell you vivid stories to sway, to sway you. I'd like to see a world where when politicians do that and demagogues do that, people boo. People, people recognize, yeah, I understand I'm constituted so that these will have an appeal to me, just like racism will have an appeal to me. But this is no fair. This is bogus. And I don't think this is necessarily a fantasy. I talk to people in other countries where there's actually different norms for political debate and a sort of schlocky, let me tell you about Joe the plumber, or let me tell you about his poor mother stuff that, that is sort of endemic in the United States. There's not as much of it in, in England, for instance, where it's kind of viewed as just cheap. And I'd like to see a cultural change regarding political discourse, the sort of discourse that's accepted regarding the sort of political claims that are made and I think right now the stakes are actually very high. We, we, we're in a situation right now where people point to single individual cases and they, they try to get you to feel empathy for the victims. And, you know, as, as our friend Adam Smith pointed out, that is such a powerful catalyst for violence and hatred. And you can make that part of your psyche go away. But just as with racism, you could kind of override it. And recognize it. So I'd like to see a cultural shift. I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see a case where politicians come up and they say, they basically come come out of the closet and say, I'm a rational cost benefit kind of reasoner. I want to make the country better and I want to figure out the best way to do it. And they don't get lapped off the stage. And we don't, and we debate whether their cost benefits a good analysis or not, rather yeah, than whether I can tell a better story to make you uh, scared or emotional Absolutely. or whatever inspired than, than, than my opponent. So I don't know precisely how many refugees the United States should let in, but, but I do know that, for instance, telling me the story of some woman who was murdered by a refugee is not an answer to that question. 
how about show me a Syrian child who's starving and crying, which would also be the, not, right? Uh, yep, also not an answer. Just want to show your 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 bipartisan, Paul. <laughs> I, <laughs> keep the I, hate, I, I want to keep the hate I, mail down. Yeah, there's a, there's, the, the hate mail a very. Um, I, I feel it very uh, pointedly here because we stay away from political issues here on Econ Talk and. Uh, people sometimes ask me, interview so and so, or how about having this person on? And I said, I'm not so interested. I, they're, you know, they're partisan. I'm not. They'll defend themselves or politicians. I try not to have politicians on the show. Not trying not to. I don't have politicians on the show, at least explicitly political ones. And right now, I feel it's a very charged time. People are very emotional about pro and con on this uh, yep. current political environment, and um, it's not a good time for econ talk. So uh, we're trying to we're trying to stay above. The, that's not good for econ talk. So we're trying to stay above above the fray. It's a very good time for econ talk. But of course, it's an excellent time for econ talk. And you're right. My my point is, I, I, I chose an example on one side of it, but you know, um, I'll give the other side then for for fairness. During the debate, one of the debates with Trump, Hillary Clinton was basically leaning a lot towards military action in Aleppo, and yeah. she kept saying, "Have you seen the pictures? Right. How have you seen the videos? How could you not want to act?" And I'm thinking, that's that's a that's not even it's a terrible argument it may persuade people but i'm old enough to remember in previous wars it, it was exactly the same way people would show pictures tell horrible heart-rendering stories often real ones and then they say so let's go and uh drop some bombs yeah and do some invasion and regardless of what one's political affiliation is we should recognize this is not a good way to proceed we're still mammals yes but we're unusual mammals, and we, we, we have rationality, and we should give that more weight. So I sometimes like to point out that um, – have people go look at the 1964 acceptance speech of Barry Goldwater. And you can like Barry Goldwater or hate him, but what's striking about it is there's none of that kind of thing in there. It's a very academic-y, almost scholarly, abstract, philosophical – speech. Yeah. And somewhere between then 1964 and now sometime in the last 50 years that went out of fashion. And the what I what I like to call the I knew a guy school of economics yes. got more popular the the dramatic story the and, and it became, you know, I I think I associated with Reagan. I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if he's the first person to do it, but you know, at state of the union address there'd be somebody in the crowd that we would yeah. who would stand up and I, we have to be careful here on the flip side. I don't know if we're I don't know if these are real empathy stories, but that's the way I do think of them, and I think you've highlighted it. What happened? What happened to this culture? Do you have any thoughts on that? How do we get so empathetic? Why did it become? Why is it that you're so unpopular, Paul, for writing a book called <laughs> Against Empathy? Because it is the mainstream. It is the it's the given. Yeah. Um, you know, I I honestly don't know. I think there has been a change in our country over empathy. And I think a more general one actually, which fits with what you're saying, which is a privileging of the heart over the over the head. I don't know whether it's the sixties, I don't know whether it was it's sort of a, a philosophical, psychological rebellion against rationality has trickled down to the general public. Maybe it's just a race to the bottom for some reason. Where, you know, the more emotive and more actually sometimes clownish appeals just work. And so people keep, you know, trying to outdo one another. I, I honestly don't know what's happened because I feel the world has changed. Um, and, but if it's changed, it could change back. Yeah. 
Let me let me try something. I hadn't thought about this before. Yeah, you, you, just throw you, you something out. Let me throw something out. Uh, I'm thinking about I don't know why I'm thinking about Fahrenheit 451 by mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury, which uh, I didn't read until my kid had to read it, and I was empathetic. He couldn't figure it out all of it, so I, was, I thought I'd read it and help. Him. Mm-hmm. It was foolish me, bad parent, but uh, I'm being I'm being facetious. Uh, it was I really, get it. I get it. It was really fun, and uh, it's a shockingly prescient and thoughtful book. And uh, there's a, you know there's a I think it was written in the I want to say in the 50s I think maybe the early 60s but there's a he foreshadows the um, the big screen TV and the um, the internet revolution in some sense he has there's a room in the house where instead of reading people just go and and look at images and I feel like there's been a certain I don't like to be the um, you know the the old fogey who complains our attention spans down, and but there certainly is a, a premium on faster, quicker, more vivid, um, more visual rather than more thoughtful, which is what, to some extent, the internet is over a book. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. Um, and we like that. It's nice. And it's certainly the, the way we've gone that – you know, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you a picture of a crying child, and that's much easier to absorb than a detailed analysis of the possible consequences of a conflict. So I don't know. That's my. I don't know why that's happened, but it seems to have happened. Um, so some of it, 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 it's a good answer, which is some of it may have been technological. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember reading. I'm just remembering now when I was a kid. I'll never remember where it was from. A science fiction novel. I used to gobble them up, but a science fiction novel. In it, people had a little cube they carried in their pocket. And whenever they wanted to, they'd lift up the cube to their face and would spray them with something like that would make them feel relaxed or energized or loved or angry or, you know, or, or aroused. And we, we now have that. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that's what my phone is. Yeah. That's what my phone is. Yeah, my, well, beautiful. And, and so, not, so but, yeah. you can have the discipline. My, uh, my older son is a, is a, reader and a scholar and he could spend four hours reading russian novels and and you know doesn't you, it's not inevitable there's a lot of people who are not addicted not caught up who use the internet as a powerful tool and nothing else but the rest of us and i include me have a kind of addictive relationship to the short-term buzz it provides and then when you get to the political and social and cultural realm there are many people whose whose um whose work in uh, and claims and arguments are calibrated to that um, now the best the best politician will tailor his or her remarks for you know five to ten seconds exactly a sort of YouTube clip that make people laugh or cry or whatever. Well, an extended you know sixty minute speech. Who's going to sit through that? Yeah. You want to say something cheerful before we close? That, that, that you said it could go. We could we could change it. The, the, yeah. the trend doesn't look good. <laughs> um, toward thinking and an analytical and and full effects and I don't know things things are complicated. Um, I think I, it wasn't Yogi Berra or some physicist, but um, but it, the the line is uh, prediction is hard, especially about the future. Yeah, and you know, I, so so I don't I don't think this is an inevitable trend. I think often these things inspire backlashes. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, some large subculture develops a sort of abstinence from from these short bursts this love of long reading and everything things can go all sorts of ways my i'm i'm, I'm sort of by disposition an optimist 
Yeah, me too. My guest has been Paul Bloom. His book is Against Empathy. He's still a nice person, though. And uh, really enjoyed talking to you, Paul. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much. This has been fun. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.